Hey folks, Jeff here. This morning I'm having another visit with my dear friend and brother, Dr. Keith Witt. Good morning, Keith. How are you doing? I'm doing good right now. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great, Keith. Uh, so Keith, for those of you who don't know, is a psychotherapist and teacher and author who's lived in uh, Santa Barbara, California for 40 years. And he is the founder of the School of Love, which you, you can find out more about on his website, uh, drkeithwitt.com. And he recently posted his 13th lecture on this site. It's on a series he's offering on an integrated understanding of life and love and intimacy and spirituality and psychotherapy, which is his specialty, having done over 50,000 psychotherapy sessions over his career and written two of the uh, really seminal books on integrally informed psychotherapy. There's four of them actually, Waking Up, Sessions, The Attuned Family, and the gift of shame. And Keith, you've done TED Talks, a number of lectures all over the place. You're in Integral Life, the Journal of Integral Theory and Practice. Married to Becky for since 1973. Two kids, Zoe kids. and Ethan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the Daily Evolver again, Keith. Oh, God, this is one of the pleasures of my life to have these conversations with you, Jeff. <laughs> Me too. And, you know, today we're going to talk about something that, you know, it's basically interesting to everybody. It's, in a sense, the lowest common denominator interest, and that's sex. You know, mm -hmm. everybody has it. I suppose there are a few exceptions. But, you know, sex is important to us, and it causes a lot of uh, shame, a lot of trauma. Uh, it's uh, complex for people, and it's also delicious and um, transcendent and it really is a container for a lot of what it is to be human and I'm sure you see that in your sessions all the time it's been yeah. it was obvious to me in the 70s when I was learning uh, uh, couples counseling that none of the couples counselor talked to their really talked much about sex to their clients I mean yeah. Masters and Johnson got all famous in the 70s because a lot of marriage counselors were too uptight to work with sex with their couples themselves, so they sent them to St. Louis to work with Masters and Johnson. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. It was the, the, the taboos in that era were un, un, much stronger than even today. And if you're yeah. alive, well, it, go on. If you look at taboos, they're, they're interesting because in some ways they're achievements. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we were talking okay. before about the taboos fall in categories. There are some taboos like incest, they're just built in. Yeah. And they're genetic, and, that, and all mammals have them. Hmm. Uh, and then there are the taboos that really are about uh, civilizing our animal natures. Yeah. yeah. And if we look at the history of sexuality, well, Keith, why don't you walk us through it a little bit, even from the dawn of, of humankind? I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And it leads is, to where we are. It is an interesting story. Uh, you know, it runs off of the levels that the data proposed, uh, genetic, physiological pleasure, acceptance, fulfillment, yogic healing, and spiritual practice. It starts at the genetic level and the, and the pleasure level. About six million years ago, you know, chimpanzees are promiscuous. You know, a chimpanzee, uh, when she goes into heat, she'll have sex with four or five or six chimpanzees. They'll line up, you know, and have sex. And uh, they occasionally, chimpanzees will go on safari. A couple of them will go off in the forest alone. But by nature, they're a promiscuous species. 
About 6,000 years ago, there was a huge cataclysm in Africa. The Great Rift Valley formed, which changed the weather and changed the forest into tree-studded savannas. And there was a species of primates that developed feet where they were walking around. And in those environments, the mother had to hold, she had to use one of her arms to hold an infant. And primates, because we have the von Economo neuron and we have extensive socialization, kids are dependent for long periods of time compared to other mammals. And so that female needed to have, she couldn't protect herself very well. And at that time, the species began to develop monogamy. So that a, a man, a male, could fall in love, develop a romantic infatuation with a specific female and keep it for two or three years, which is long enough for uh, an infant to become ambulatory, begin to take care of itself a little bit. And that was the birth of monogamy. But of course, we're, mer we're wired for serial monogamy because in the midst of that, you know, romantic infatuation fades after two or three years. And then we start being um, interested in long-term bonding with one particular person, but we also still have our lust circuits. If, we, if we're a guy, if we see a feminine shape or if we're a, f a woman and someone with presence, a guy with presence, wants us, we still have that. We still have our lust circuits and our, and our romantic infatuation circuits where we're available to fall in love with another person. And so we can see that fast forward into today's society where we have long-term intimate bonding, we have people having you know, their lust experiences autoerotically or with hookups or, and prostitutes and so on, and we have people falling in love as singles or sometimes when they're intimately bonded with somebody else, falling in love and having a secret affair. We have all those forms. Right. Now, developmentally, as human beings take biological drives and take everything and turn it into art. And so that's what Integral teaches us is that we go up the levels, every, the world changes, and when the world changes, everything else changes, including relationships and including sexuality. So as we, as a typical kid, they're born, kids are born being capable of, of feeling uh, sexual p pleasure, they move into a sense of, of uh, sexual pleasure, you know, kind of innocent pleasure of your body and your emergent sexuality. Um, and then that moves into, with children, where they want to be accepted. And so they enter uh, an area where the rules of their family and the rules of their culture matter, and they shape their sexual thinking and their sexual behavior so they won't be disapproved of, and they will have a subjective sense of being accepted. And then when they well, go you talk about parenting and helping really move kids along in this yeah. stage of, you know, sort of casual, naked masturbation, little kids do, to, you know, civilizing them. And yeah. the ways that we typically do that and uh, more enlightened and, and you might say integral ways of doing that. Yeah, I think integrally informed parenting really gives children a leg up in the world. And specifically, let's use sexuality. You know, a little kid, little kid, you walk into a room, a little kid's masturbating, and you say, you know, he's four years old. So the conversation is either you get embarrassed and you shame him, which is a typical American response, or you could look at the kid and say, you know, what you're doing is masturbating, and in this culture, doing that around other people is against the rules. So now, from now on, if you need to do that, you've got to do that by yourself. Now, right. Those two messages still get the message across to the kid. There's a culture of the family, and the culture of the family is always embedded in other cultures. So the parent transmits the cultural values, don't masturbate in, in public, 
But on one, you know, feel bad about yourself, feel bad about your penis, feel bad about sex, feel bad about masturbating, you know, yuck, yuck, yuck. Because, and the other one is, you know, in this country, <laughs> you, don't, you don't masturbate around other people, you masturbate by yourself. So when you're by yourself, have a great time masturbating, but don't do it around other people. You see that there's a lot less trauma in the second message. Yeah, absolutely. And um, if I just think theoretically about integral and in, in that integral is wanting to bring back what was really best about all previous stages, yeah. uh, early human beings were not so ashamed by their bodies. They were, were more naked and, and more promiscuous, I'm assuming. Uh, certainly once we get to red, there's a certain hedonism and brutality that... What's just seems to be characteristic of that stage of development. I mean, we see it now in you know gangs and red culture now. It's very mm-hmm. promiscuous and hedonistic. Part of development means that we want to come in and, in a way, shut that down right. and become more puritanical is actually a move forward. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? And at Integral, we want, we want, so, we want to taste all of that in a, in a way that is liberated, so to speak. You know, modern sexuality, interestingly, is more like hunter-gatherer sexuality than any of the other memes, which I find hmm. fascinating. Hunter-gatherers, kids will start playing house around 6 or 7 or 8, start experimenting with intercourse around 9, 10, or 11. But because they're all so skinny and they run around all the time, they don't, they're not available to get pregnant until they're 17, 18, and 19. Just puberty Hunt- is later. Yeah, puberty is later, and the girls aren't, aren't fertile. Uh, it's... Uh, until a couple years, several years after puberty. Also, in hunter-gatherer groups, they have about the same level of divorce as modern society. Now, when you went into red, yeah, you have guys accumulating wealth, and so when guys are accumulating wealth, and it's the rule of the strongest, then women become property, and guys accumulate women. And, and also, you don't have uh, uh, tribal taboos around people abusing other people, and then you have rule by force, and you know, as we all know, that completely sucks. And actually, that goes against human nature to a certain extent. Humans are wired to share and care and be fair, to, to quote uh, Lynn mm-hmm. McTaggart. And so there's a certain level of tension in red society because we all know it's not fair. And, you know, right. that's one of the reasons why the, the unhappiest cultures on Earth typically were the Soviet bloc cultures, where everybody knew it was unfair. And where you have, when you have a wide distribution of, of wealth, you know, really rich, really poor people, those, you have more social unrest in those cultures because that lack of fairness tends to disturb people on a very deep, visceral level. And then you're right. You go to blue, you, you need those rules to, to, to moderate, you know, red and impulsivity and power dominance. And, and also in agrarian society, sexuality has always been controlled to control populaces, as we know. And, and then we go to a more rational society. Now, what happens in more rational societies, they tend to suppress and dissociate from both genetic imperatives and the unconscious assumption of the blue rules. And so a lot of, these, a lot of rational people come up with idealized version, you know, like Aldous Huxley's book, Island. You know, mm-hmm. people imagine a millenarian society where everybody gets to have sex with everybody whenever they want, and all that's fine, and so on, and... You know, this, is, this, this, this informed the communes of the 70s that all, of course, went to hell and fell to pieces, or the Rajneeshis, which all went to fall, fell to hell. 
because rational doesn't realize that there are genetic imperatives that you have to take into account and that there are cultural rules that you need to have and that we all have a will to dominance that we have to acknowledge and deal with. Just like when we go to green, you know, that's an up level from rational because it says we're going to care for everybody and what everybody feels matters. Well, that's good. But then we have to go under the illusion that everybody's equal and that there's not that many differences between male and female, that those are culturally determined. Excuse me. Yeah, the, the differences between male and female tend to be culturally guided, but there's no culture that's, that's ever existed where there aren't differences between male and female. Yeah, and actually, when we really look into the differences between male and female and feel into that, it, they're enormous. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and as you say, it, they're the, the sort of the meta-polarity of, of life is the male and female energetic yeah, that's on top of all the other types. Yeah. So whether I'm a more masculine or more feminine type, you know, we all have masculine and feminine aspects, of course, but in the sexual occasion, we're a more masculine or more feminine person, mostly. And that's a metatype that's on top of all the other types. It's something that is of crucial importance. And we have inhibitions around examining that. Because if we, most of our sexuality, uh, you know, what's going to turn us on is, is largely in place by the time we're 10 or 12. John Gottman calls it the love map. And whatever that is, something about it is not going to be in keeping with what we imagine our culture likes. Okay, so if we're in a straight culture and we have some gay programming, we're going to be worried about that, ashamed about that. Yeah. You know, if we're in a culture where... Um, uh, you know, it's supposed to be missionary style, and we like doggy style. Uh-oh, we're going to be ashamed of that. You know what I mean? It's, it's like if we're yeah. in a culture where you're not supposed to like be attracted to body parts, and we really like, you know, just a nice, perfect ass, then we're supposed, <laughs> to, <laughs> supposed to be ashamed of that. And so everybody has some kind of thing in them that they're reflexively ashamed of. As we move into, from, from um, the more rational to postmodern, from orange to green, it seems like there's a couple things happen. One is we do relax those taboos, don't we? I mean, this is what the sexual revolution is all about. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. And Which so that, that happens. And then the other thing is interesting that I'm, I'm seeing more and more in the in news and cultural reports is that actually the people who are, have the most long-lived and stable happy marriages are college graduates, uh, upper-level economic people. Marriage is actually doing quite well at that stage of development. Yes, it is. It's more stable. People are getting married later, and they're, they're more likely to stay married, less likely uh, to get divorced. That's true. The, so how do we navigate this life, then, where we have, you know, these sexual drives and these impulses are so strong. It's as strong as hunger. Oh, yeah, you it's know, a drive. It's as strong as hunger for food. That's true. And the, 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 this polarity between, between men and women, and I say that as a gay man. I mean, I, I'm not attracted to women, but I'm, you know, highly attracted to qualities in other men that are different than mine. And, you know, it's still the whole human ball of wax there. It is. And we're living on top of this volcano of <laughs> sexual drive and impulse and, you know, distraction and obsession. Uh -huh. And, you know, we, yet we work together. It's amazing. It is I think amazing. it's amazing. Amazing Absolutely. achievement of humanity that men and women can work together and not, like, you know, 
fall down on the ground and start rolling around. <laughs> yeah, you know, Data said in one of his lectures, he, he might not still <laughs> think this, he said eventually men and women won't work together in the same environment, but I disagree with him. <laughs> I, 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 and, and he might even disagree with himself now, I'd have to ask him. Yeah. Um, yeah. My belief about it is, is almost everything, as you know, I believe that, that everything is fields. And, you know, basically we're at an assembly point of a lot of fields that are biased towards coherence. And a lot of those fields are the intersubjective fields between human beings, and there's a, a, a component of my uh, sexual aspects in essence interacting with your sexual aspects in essence and everybody else's sexual aspects in essence. And you can experience that as a field phenomena in that, you know, there's an intersubjective field that's formed when any two people are connected. Now what flirting is, is there's a spark of attraction between one person's uh, masculine and one person's feminine, there's a, little, that, there's a little flirtation if people connect. Now that field can be adjusted from either side to serve the highest good, and it should be. Hmm. But the only way you can do that is if you either naturally adjust the field to serve the highest good, which is a few people, or you're aware of the field, and you're aware of what serves the highest good, and you develop a yoga of adjusting that polarity to serve the highest good. And that's my favorite. A few people naturally do it well, but most people don't. And so if I'm around an erotically radiant woman and there's a little spark of flirtation, and if she feeds it, I need to consciously adjust that polarity so it doesn't turn into a distracting attraction for me or, or even for her. Now, mm -hmm. th that goes against my natural tendency as a masculine person to go, hmm, yummy. You know, a yummy, yummy woman is feeding the flirtation. I want to feed it back. That's what tends to turn into distracting attractions and then romantic infatuations and then secret affairs. You know, causes a lot of suffering. Right. And as we know, between 15 and 25% of women and between 25 and 45% of men will cheat on their partners sometime during the marriage. You know, when what you are have those percentages again? Between 15 and 25% of women and between 25 and 45% of men will cheat on their husband or wife at least one time during their marriage. Right. Those are huge statistics. And, you know, they're going up. A the, the discrepancy between men and women is changing because there's more women in the workforce. And the more women there are in the workforce, the, workforce, uh, the workplace is a, is a very common place for those kinds of relationships to happen. Yeah. Well, you realize you have a little sympathy for some of these pre-modern cultures that literally do keep women isolated. Yeah. And covered. And, you know, there's just the, 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 the structures of civilization, you might say, even the Ten Commandments. You can't covet your, you, you can't go take your neighbor's wife, okay? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. That those came online and civilized people so that now we're, we're as you say, you know, consciously turning away from these attractions and uh, moderating and them. Moderating them. Yeah, you know, like a flirtation works if it's, you know, it's good for a beautiful woman to feel appreciated by a good guy. Okay, that's good. That enlivens her and enlivens the room. But if it's too much, then it potentially could cause problems. It's good for a guy, you know, to feel the appreciation of a feminine person. But if it's too much, it can cause problems. And yeah. so being aware of those fields and consciously adjusting them to serve, you know, to, to do right, 
what that does is you moderate the processes and you don't allow the, the, the distracting attractions and the romantic infatuations to constellate. And if they do constellate, there are ways that we've discovered that can deconstruct them um, if you need to deconstruct them. You know, if you have a romantic infatuation with another woman and you're married, you need to deconstruct that romantic infatuation and then you need to reconstruct your eroticism a little bit with your partner. And if you don't, your relationship really doesn't fully recover from that. How do you do that? <laughs> well, <laughs> funny you should ask, Jeff. <laughs> this is something that was a passion of mine uh, in in the 70s, I realized this needed to happen with couples. Nobody was doing it. So I studied with a lot of the sex therapy people in the 70s. And still, what was missing is that people didn't really have an understanding about how eroticism worked differently with men and women. You know, for instance, women are taught, and this is well-meaning parents tell their girls, don't do it unless you feel like it. I mean, that's a progressive message to a girl. Right. Don't do it unless you feel like it. In other words... Desire leads to arousal. If you don't have desire, don't go for it. Okay, that works with lust, which you know is an immediate thing when you feel when you're attracted to someone, and it works with romantic infatuation, which is an altered state where you're intoxicated with each other, and you have heightened levels of dopamine and testosterone, which gives you more sexual urgency. But a couple that stays together past the year and a half, two years, enter intimate bonding, where there's less sexual urgency, and for women, often the sex drive disappears. You know, they just don't feel it because women are not visually erotic, particularly if, they're, if in the later part of the relationship they're tired, they're working, they have kids, that kind of stuff. And in that case, they need to be turned on to feel like they want to have sex. Now, in the absence of knowing that, their guys start getting pissed off because women don't feel like as much like having sex anymore. This is where we get all these marriage jokes about guys wanting that husbands wanting sex. Oh, yeah, this is not. just, uh, you know... Standard cultural punchline. Standard cultural punchline. And women, you know, you get a bunch of women who have kids under one together, and they'll all say, you know, I'm nursing. I don't feel that much like having sex. Now, if you ask more deeply with these women, they'll say, well, every once in a while we start doing it, and then, wow, all of a sudden I have a good time, and then we have fun having sex, and afterwards we go, why don't we do this more often? And the reason they don't do it more often is they're relying on unconscious forces to get their sexuality going, and you can't rely on unconscious forces to get your sexuality going under those circumstances because all the responsibilities of a modern life push those things out, and that's, that couple tends to lose each other. You have to move from this idea that desire has to precede arousal to yeah. arousal can precede desire. Yeah, and even more, if you're going to a deeper level of connected, connectedness with your partner, this is where you hit the yogic level of sexuality. You know, you, you have a conscious tantric practice with each other. You, I mean, it doesn't have to involve the tantric words, but basically when two people are consciously arranging to have an erotic connection with each other that leaves them both feeling fulfilled, that conscious arrangement is a tantric practice. Couples that have that do really, really well. Couples that don't have that do a lot less well. What does that look like? How, how do we do the tantric practice? Well, the first, Especially in the context of a long marriage. Yeah, long marriage. Well, you, you, you know, it's funny. You know, Becky and I were, met each other in 1973, but we didn't get married until 1984. You know, I was so suspicious of uh, uh, marriage because I'd seen so many marriages just seem so unhappy and loveless and sexless when, you know, in the 60s and stuff. 
that I was kind of snake bit around marriage. You know, it was only until we were, we were together 11 years and I was confident that we could have an expanding love and expanding eroticism that getting married sounded like a really good idea to me. You know, the, <laughs> the first thing that, you're able, that you do is you, be, is you are able to courageously examine your own sexual wiring to be able to, to discuss sexual wiring with your partner in, a, in an environment of safety and acceptance which is yeah. really hard because we tend yeah. to judge our partner if they like something we don't like. Okay? Yeah. And so, say he likes anal sex and she doesn't. Okay? Well, so she'll have a tendency typically to be pissed off at him or down on him for liking anal sex instead of just saying, I don't like it, you like it. Or he'll be pissed at her for not liking it. Okay? Yeah. Instead of saying, all right, we have this situation where you like it and I don't like it, okay. So how do we work with that so that we can both feel fulfilled? I get this with blowjobs all the time because, you know, guys, guys will, 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 will love oral sex. A lot of guys love oral sex. And women at a certain point go, my jaw's getting sore, right? <laughs> so so her jaw's getting sore, but she feels like she has to keep doing it because he's having such a good time. And so, so oral sex always ends with her with a sore jaw. And so she starts not liking oral sex. So one of the things I, I ask women, I go, well, do you enjoy it? Women go, well, yeah, I, kinda, I like it. I like it a little bit. I like it a lot. Don't like it, whatever. But often a little bit to a lot. But I don't like women. I said, so as soon as your jaw starts getting sore, I mean, within seconds, two or three seconds, just stop. You go, well, he won't like that. Well, it's too fucking bad that he won't like it. You know, you want to have you want to have your charge on oral sex to be positive, and you're not going to have it if you're just going down on him and your jaw's sore. Now, yeah. this is a conversation most couples can't have. No. So if you can have that conversation, that begins to expand your range. And also begins, there's a subtext of this conversation of we're going to kind of work with each other until we feel mutually, we both feel a sense of fulfillment. And people take all kinds of biases into their sexuality because remember, we did not have good sexual training. Most of us, our sexual training was by same age kids. So most of our training came from 8-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and 16-year-olds, you know, telling us about sex. As if, oh, totally. No, it's the amazing, thing, actually, that we yeah. figured it out at all. It is. It's a testament to the drive, to sexual drive, to lust, romantic infatuation, intimate bonding. It's one of the achievements of green, too, of the sexual revolution, that we can talk about it as, and, and even play with it and use it as a means of expression and fun which was not at all what we were taught, you know, that's pretty amazing. And actually, it's funny. I mean, when you look at the development of, of, of all kinds of new things that are arising out of a particular structure of consciousness, in, th in this case, uh, sexual liberation arising out of a more traditionalist culture, to yes. the traditionalists, sexual liberation did not look like a move forward. No. It looked like a move back to hedonism. Yeah, it still does, absolutely, to traditionalists. And that's just, uh, you know, one of the dynamics that is at play in our culture. Green didn't manage with, you know, the experimentation and so forth to maintain monogamous relationships very well. Isn't that interesting? You know, it's like Green's not hierarchical. And in a way, monogamous relationships are hierarchical. For instance, in a monogamous relationship... Sexually, I have a hierarchy. I have my partner who I have intercourse with, and I have sex with and so on, and I, I have kind of this primary, you know, transparent, ideally, relationship. 
There's yeah. other women that I'm attracted to and that perhaps are attracted to me that I might even be able to flirt with, which is a form of sexual exchange. But I really can't go any farther than that because I have one woman where it's at the top of the hierarchy and they're lower than her on that sexual hierarchy. That's all there is to it. Mm. Yeah. Similarly, you know, most people are either the leader, you know, the more masculine or the follower, the more feminine in the sexual dance. Okay. So the leader yeah. is more the director in the sexual dance. You know, some people are more turned on being the top, more turned on being the leader. Some people are more turned on being the bottom. They're yeah. not the same. So that not being the same kind of goes against, you know, Green goes, well, I should be at the top half the time, and I should be at the bottom half the time. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's, it's wonderful. Green's egalitarian impulse is, so, it's, again, a wonderful achievement. Yeah. But it doesn't work as well in sex. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a no. stage beyond it. And again, for Green to say that there's hierarchy in sex and that there can be one person who's basically more dominant than the other, that feels to them like regression. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, it can be regression. It can be regression. Can be regression. Who, you know, if you have somebody coercing sex, we're, we're back to red. If we have somebody saying, you know, it's wrong for your, you, you know, to want, not want to keep going to give me a blowjob when your jaw's sore, we're back to blue. You know, I have this blue standard, you know, I should finish. If we're rational, you know, why should it bother you that I, why should it bother you to have anal sex? You can get used to it. You know, what's the problem? You know, it turns me on. Why shouldn't it, you know, you see what I mean? You can't have regressions, and they do yep. exist. But there's healthy expressions of all of those at every level, and those healthy expressions will interface with whatever turns us on, whatever our love map is. And to a certain extent, we kind of have to make peace with what turns us on, because that's not something we create as much as something we discover. Yeah. Just like that's sex the love is, map. That's the love map. Just like sex isn't necessarily something you do, it's a place that you go. And so when we go mm. to that place, nice. when we go to that place, yeah, that's, uh, Esther Perel said that in a TED talk. I really love that. The woman who wrote Sex and Captivity. Uh, she mm. wrote a book. She, she was working in New York and all these uh, long-term couples were coming in her and saying, There's no, we are, we're not feeling any eroticism. And so she was working with them and she was getting them back to eroticism, essentially by having them do exercises where they would encounter each other in novel ways. Because novelty tends to increase dopamine, which increases testosterone, which increases uh, eroticism in both men and women. Huh. And, I, and I, I agree with a certain amount of what she said. I disagree with some of it because neurobiology gives us a little bit more of a, of a wider, you know, the right quadrants gives a, give us a little bit wider view of how people are wired sexually and how brains are wired around attachment and sex. And that really helps us have better sexual relationships, uh, better marriages, that kind of stuff. So anyway, that's how you do it. You engage in that particular practice, and you know that practice will arise out of whatever worldview you have. <laughs> yeah. Which gets, you know, when you're working with couples, it gets very complicated. Because, you know, you, you, can, you, you can have a sense of, of where they would be two or three levels beyond where they are, but then you need to kind of find a sense where each one of them are right now and then help them have a healthy manifestation of this level with, with a little bit of pushing at the edges to be able to go to the next level, which involves them having to deal with these interior dissociations and, and shame dynamics, having to deal with whether they're accepting or not, having to deal with their inhibitions about discussing sex or experimenting with sex or creating a tantric practice with each other. Yeah, I would think that a lot of couples would have, I mean, I guess this is the point of therapy, but with a therapist, they 
can actually talk about these things, maybe more yeah. so than they can by themselves. Yeah. So in the 70s, I'd get, a couple would come in and they'd go, well, we were working with this other person for like six or seven months but didn't make any progress. I said, so, did you ever talk about your sex life? They'd go, no, he never asked us about it. <laughs> in, the, in the 70s, the, the therapists were so inhibited, they weren't asking their clients about their sex lives. I found that hilarious. I, well, I, I noticed that uh, you, you, you sent me some notes that we'll publish, actually, on the site with this talk. And you talked Great. about one of the things that these days, uh, um, now that we're liberated, that a psychotherapist has to be careful of in him or herself as they therapize couples, is that they want to lay on the couple the idealized, sexual version of themselves. That's right. It really is a problem. It's something. And you know, in, in general, you do that as a therapist. You tend to unconsciously, whatever you're dealing with with a client, you tend to have an idealized version of how you would be healthy in that area and, and tend to project that onto them, you know, which causes, yeah. like, could potentially cause lots of problems. And so well, you, it's just something, you know, I notice myself doing that in all kinds of conversations. You yeah. know, my advice to another person is my idealized of who I would be if I were them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and a and, lot of it know. is lines and levels because, you know, you were talking earlier about how college people are more likely to um, stay married, less likely to yeah. divorce, more likely to marry, actually. Well, developmentally, when you go through a rational stage, a pluralistic stage, you know, when you're going into those developmental levels, it's a good time to experiment with different sexual forms. That's when people will have, you know, they'll have their three ways. That's when people will have their, um, their gay experiences. That's when people yeah. occasionally will cheat and lie and then discover that they don't like doing it. You know, that's when there's this this area of experimentation, this area of being wild. You you find this a lot when there's someone who breaks out of a fundamentalist system. I found this a lot. Somebody who breaks out of a fundamentalist system and they just fuck like a bunny for, you know, years. And then they would come back and they go, hmm, deeper intimacy requires um, honesty. It requires fidelity. Because as you go deeper, there's a certain point where if you're not sexually faithful, it compromises the intimacy. Um, well, and this then, is one of the things that maybe this elongated uh, adolescence into the 20s and in, in later marriage actually is uh, fruitful. I think so. Yeah, I, I do I, too, I, actually. I, I'm a believer in I, I like the extended adolescence uh, of the current society. And, I, and yeah, another I thing too. I like about it is that we, we're more likely to have kids talking to their parents because we have deeper parents. We're more likely to have kids talking to their parents about these kinds of issues. Um, I remember one, one time, I, I don't I think my, my son would mind this story. So, you know, he and his girlfriend were having arguments about sex, and he talked to me about it because my kids were talking to me about sex from, you know, two or three on. And so his girlfriend found out about it, and, you know, she, she came from a completely different culture. It was horrifying, horrifying to her, the idea of cross-generational talk about sex. You know, they had a huge fight about it. And finally, the way they resolved it is that Ethan said, if we don't resolve whatever the issue is, I get to talk to my dad about it. (laughs) But if we resolve it, that's fine. I won't talk to him about it. Which put a lot of pressure on that. That's even horrifying to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that's great. You know, how amazing to talk to your kids like that. One of the other issues I wanted to bounce off of you is 
I don't know whether it's a new emergent. I guess it sort of is. You see it in the integral community for sure. And that is polyamory. Oh, yeah. And this idea of having sexual, inti- deep, intimate sexual relationships with more than one person. And how uh, do you see that, and where's that going? Well, first of all, I think that that's often a stage that people go through. And, and you, know, you don't have to be young to go through it. You know, you might you know, be in a, in a monogamous relationship, break up, and then go through a polyamorous stage after that. Now, if you want to ha- experience it in a healthy fashion, very, very difficult to be healthy psychosexually with pure abstinence, in my opinion. You know, just the pure monastic, ascetic life. I think it's very, very difficult. I, I think maybe some people can do it. I don't, and I think it's very, very difficult to sustain polyamory, too. Because I've never known anybody to do it successfully over a period of time. I just haven't. Me either. Yeah. And so I, I, I think that what happens is people want to get more intimate with a lover. And at a certain point, that intimacy requires monogamy and transparency. And I know from my, I know from my own experience, having you know, gone through my own polyamorous stage, that one of the worst feelings in the world is to be driving down the road at 10 o'clock at night knowing that your partner is up in the mountains in bed with her friend Noel having great sex and you're just sitting here by yourself feeling like it shouldn't bother you and wanting to go fucking kill yourself because it does. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, that night was a really great night for me. I went, you know, Keith, there are forces at work here that are beyond your capacity to reason. (laughs) And. And so research, neurobiological research and developmental research has, has, has actually supported that over the years. And so this is the price of development. As we go to new stages, there are new demands on us to experience those stages in a healthy way. And at a certain point, it demands monogamy. But unfortunately in America, monogamy does not have a corresponding sense of obligation to create mutual fulfillment. It drives me crazy in marriage, count, in marriage ceremonies the marriage ceremonies, what people do is they promise a lot of stuff, but they don't really talk about what they intend to do. You know, when Becky and I got married, we wrote our own words, of course. You know, <laughs> we're both green enough to do that. Anyway, <laughs> but I didn't make any promises when I got married. I just said what I intended to do. I intend to take care of my love for you every day. I intend to do that for the rest of my life. And so far, I'm doing a pretty good job. And part of that is I intend to do what it takes for us to have a fulfilling eroticism with each other. Okay, that's an intent that needs to be renewed and acted upon. It's you know it's a it's a uh, it's a paradigm. And so, in the absence of that felt sense of responsibility, couples will promise to be monogamous, but then kind of lose each other as lovers, which makes them prone to distracting attraction, secret affairs, sexual betrayal. Sexual, you know, horrible things. You know, the kinds of things that yeah, cause people to be unhappy. No, I, I, I know that, and I, I had the same thing. It's funny that you you refused to make any promises. I did too. Yeah, there you when go. When I was married uh, in 1990 to my husband, this was before it was legal or anything, and we we had a w- wonderful marriage for 13 oh. years, uh, and was monogamous and very healthy. And what I did promise, I did make one promise, and my promise was that I would love him forever. And I didn't promise anything else. And I'm glad because I can keep that promise. I know I can keep that promise, and I have. And we see each other every day, and we're closer than, we're we're family. 
but we deconstructed the marriage uh, just out of um, you know we were ready to move on and try something else and but that was the the idea of promising forever and that sort of, I just couldn't bring myself to do it yeah yeah so the polyamory I can see that it's a, a useful stage but it, it and 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 maybe for some people it's it's uh, fruitful and maybe it's uh, yeah, but like you said I haven't seen anybody do it for a long time without lots of trouble it seems like yeah. it's just ask for you're asking for a lot of trouble well you're really you know in, in a way in a particular kind of way you're saying I'm going to sacrifice the potential level of intimacy that I can have with another person you know when you go to those depths of monogamy for the kind of the, the, the more tribal experience um, of having access sexual access and other people having sexual access in different situations with me but again yeah. The forces that you're working with are so powerful that it ends up causing an awful lot of suffering in my experience. Um, yeah. You know, you, you, well, you, you it, know, as you say, the depth of intimacy that is available in, in monogamy, and I love what you said about that at some stage of the game here, uh, we actually begin to see our intimacy as a gift not just to each other but to the world. Yeah, I think so. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Here's two couples, all right? Here's a couple that are married and have a couple of kids who you know, are out in the world. All right? So they're having great sex on a Sunday morning. And then, you know, they go down to the beach to take a walk. You know, I, I, Becky and I used to walk on the beach on Sunday morning. You could always tell the couples that had sex and gone to the beach to take a walk because they all had a rosy glow around. It was hilarious, really. <laughs> we still do that today. Okay, so there's that couple. And, you know, and so that, they, them having that great sex on Sunday morning, they're doing better, their kids do better, their friends do better, their little community does better. Everybody does better because of that great sex they had Sunday morning. Here's a couple that are cheating on their spouses having sex on Sunday morning. Okay? Their children, yeah. you know, same great sex, their children are doing worse. Kids hate it when parents cheat on each other. Their friends are doing worse. Friends hate it when people cheat on each other. Their community does worse. They hate it when they do it. The people themselves will do worse. People who are cheating on their partners tend to get sick, you know, because it's so stressful. So you have the same great sex on one hand in a committed relationship, creating all this great stuff for the two individuals and for the people. Everybody gets healthier. Good sex is about the same as a 20-minute aerobic exercise. Here we have a couple people cheating. It's bad for everybody, including them. Okay, and so let me see. You know, which one do I prefer having the predominant mode of sexuality in my culture? Now, the problem with it, of course, is that in intimate bonding, it requires work to keep your sexual relationship expanding because you don't have the aid of romantic infatuation or that initial sense of lust when you see somebody that you don't know and you haven't seen before. You know, that habituation effect. This is why they, you know, in men's magazines, they didn't have the same woman every single month, even though it was basically the same body most of the time. And people wanted to see somebody different. Why? There's a part of us that gets habituated and want novelty. Okay, so that desire for sexual novelty, you know, we, to a certain extent, we need to put work with our, our current partner to create some version of that, or we'll feel a sense of loss not being able to pursue it out in our world. You know, and that's where a lot of the polyamory philosophy comes from, in my opinion. Um, but you know, yeah, you want the your, best of both worlds. You want the best of variety and the best of intimacy, and yeah. you know, good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> and you know, yeah. you, can, you can you can work with if you're working with a sexual practice, a tantric practice with your partner. 
you can expand your eroticism if you have a couple people that are on board. But you know, just like any other yogic practice, you have to grow to make it work. Well, you know, the, Keith, tell me. I mean, I, I don't know how nitty gritty, but what 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 are you talking about with the tantric practices? They seem to be really the key to the city for a lot of people yeah. who will be listening, and that okay. are you know they've been long term marriages, partnerships, whatever, and you know they want to. Get the juice going. You know, one of my lectures is called American Tantra because I've studied a lot of the Eastern Tantric systems, but, you know, I'm an American. And so the Eastern Guru model really doesn't lend itself well to us egalitarian um, fuck you Americans. So <laughs> on this most basic level, a Tantric practice is a couple that are consciously putting energy on a regular basis into having an enjoyable and expanding eroticism with each other. That's sexual Tantra. Okay, that's on its most basic level. Now, within the context of that, what does that mean? That means exploring what turns each other on and playing with that. You know, there's certain basic things you can do. You know, there's breathing. You know, you breathe each other. You know, you, you learn, you know, breathing down the front, up the back, down the back, up the front. Either way, you breathing your partner, looking into your partner's eyes, you know, mobilizing the, neuro, the, the mirror neuron system, looking into your partner's eyes and smiling happily, I mean, if you're making love with somebody and you look them in the eyes and you smile happily, their nervous system re resonates with that happiness and that happiness kind of gets included into whatever their turn on is. Okay, so you can learn how, you know, you're, you're looking into somebody's left eye a little bit more than their right eye because we're working with the right hemisphere mostly when you're dealing with eroticism. That's where, uh, it's, 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 that's where the, the integrated map of the body is and proprioception tends to be emphasized. There's a lot of these kind of hooks that you can do. You know, there's, there's a tantric practice that I do, I mean, that I learned from my friend Jade Wahoo, who's a shaman in Arizona and from uh, uh, studying Margot Anon. I always invoke the old man of the east and the old woman of the south and the old man of the west and the old man and woman of the north, you know, to bless this lovemaking and make it a gift to the world before I make love. Why not? You know, that kind of. So organized. you actually do a practice where you turn and face the four directions and. Yeah, I do it kind of subtly because you know Beggy Beggy doesn't like to do it, so I kind of do it. <laughs> you know, I don't do it in a way that's distracting. But I do it every time because it's something that organizes me on a lot of different levels as to what I'm doing. So it's asking for the forces that be to come in and join and, you know, be a part of this and to have me and my partner ride on some of the natural erotic updraft of emergence. Yeah, make, Hallelujah. This, make this a gift to the world. We have to do our personal work. For instance, feminine arousal systems, there, there's at least three feminine arousal systems that have, that have been discovered. One of them is I am the beautiful embodiment of the goddess. Another one is the ravish me arousal system. And the other one is the cozy, cozy arousal system. And so a woman, no matter what her body is, whether she's gained weight or lost weight or she's old or she's young or whatever, she needs to allow herself to feel like a beautiful embodiment of the goddess on a sexual occasion. And so, you know, if you don't like your body, that interferes with that with you, and then that interferes with the fulfillment that your partner feels with you. So, you know, a guy will be having great sex with his wife, you know, and, say he's, you know, he's, and all of a sudden she looks at her leg and she goes, oh, my leg's too fat, and then wham, it's gone. So, you know, her work is I need to let myself be that beautiful embodiment independent of my body to a certain mm -hmm. extent. If you're a guy, 
you know, you, you cannot, for instance, you can't get too lost in your own pleasure so you lose your attunement with your partner. Okay? So part of the practice for a guy is being able to feel higher and higher levels of pleasure while still staying attuned to your partner's mind, spirit, and body. Okay, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of ways. You, there, there are red, blue, green, and teal explanations for what I just said, depending on what people's language is. But the practice pretty much stays the same for those couples. So those are examples of it. That's great. That's actually very helpful. Another thing, another great thing, I mean, I, I could go on forever about this, but, but another thing is that remember, what we're interested in and what appeals to us and what's icky for us to, is very state-dependent. We're going back to integral now. Okay, so we have masculine mm-hmm. feminine guys. Let's go back to states. So generally to women, penises are pretty icky. You know, Ew, icky. You know, even erect penises, if a woman is not aroused, it's kind of icky, okay? But you put a woman in bed with a guy and she's turned on with, the right, with her guy, that erect penis starts looking pretty good, okay? It's not icky anymore. Okay? Right. Or a guy, you know, if you, if you think about certain sexual practices when you're not turned on, say some kinds of oral sex, oh, you know, it's not that appealing. When you get turned on, whoa, it's very appealing. Okay, so understanding this, understanding that what we like and don't like, even what we find um, acceptable and unacceptable or shameful and not shameful, changes with our states of consciousness. That's priceless knowledge for lovers. Because most people feel like they have to keep everything consistent across states, which of course none of us do. (laughs) But everybody, to a certain extent, pretends to do that. You know, like the guru talking self-righteously about sex when he's not turned on, and then when he's turned on, how does the guru act around sex? If he's turned on and he acts badly, uh-oh, everybody gets hurt. And so if he, if he has values that he talks about when he's not turned on that are consistent with the values that he practices when he's turned on, that's a good guru. Yeah. But most gurus haven't been prepared, you know, a guru school for that. Because a guru school for that, most of it comes from agrarian, you know, traditions where you're not, in guru school, you don't talk about sex because most gurus aren't supposed to have sex anyway. Well, you know, and a lot of these guys, especially, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they would, they would come over from monasteries where they really hadn't been around women. Maybe yeah, a mother for a while, a maid maybe, but, you know... They, they, and then all of a sudden, this is Trump Rempeche here in, in Boulder. He ends up in, uh, in London in the middle of the sexual revolution after <laughs> fleeing from Tibet. But the blow his mind. He, it blew his mind. And, you know, he was just enlightened, just enlightened enough to turn <laughs> a hedonistic sexual life, well documented, into a sort of a teaching. You know, okay. God bless him. He's a, he's a rare case. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It, it, but it, an it, oft-told story among these guys. Well, how do we deal with that? Well, I, I personally want to have a teacher that basically has a good relationship where he's sexually fulfilled and who has really sound principles to guide him around erotic polarities with his students, or her yeah. students, for that matter. And this is why in, in psychotherapy land, it's, in California anyway, if you have sex with a client within two years of having a session with them, that's a felony. That's prison time. You know, that's, that's mm. not just a license thing. That's a felony. You know, it wasn't enough just to make it unethical. They had to make it fucking a felony to not have sex with a <laughs> I mean, in yeah, yeah, California. <laughs> well, because it's such an intimate encounter, psychotherapy, sexual polarities happen. If you have one crack 
in your sexual value system, you know, you're, I call it the theory of loopholes in my book, 100 Reasons Not to Have a Secret Affair. If you have one little loophole in your, your fidelity programming, you're going to work your way through that little loophole you know, and create infidelity eventually. And so you can't have those cracks, so you need to be aware of them and close them down when you discover them. When you're in a How about if uh, people live 150 years, as our children probably will? Hmm? Well, I don't know. We'll have to find out what the sexuality is like for people who are 120 years old. So far, yeah. we haven't really had anybody to study around those. The 100-year-old people that are around usually are single because the partners have... Done. Yeah, well, and they're usually pretty decrepit at that point, too. But I'm just thinking in terms of... And you're right. The answer is we'll see. And yeah. it will undoubtedly be different than what it is now. For people who live for, you know, 100-plus years of sexual functioning... Yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. But what's encouraging to me about your uh, message, Keith, and your life, you're, you're a living example of it, is that the intimacy of a long-term committed monogamous relationship can turn out to be the one that actually has a chance of offering a gift to the world. Yeah. And the eroticism is an important part of that, in my opinion. Yeah. Usual fulfillment yeah. leading into a yogic practice, usually leading into being an essential part of your spirituality. You know, they, they we're back in, the, in a way, in a weird way, back to Tibetan Buddhism, where almost anything, and, and karma yoga, where almost everything you do is an expression of God. So if we're doing yeah. that from a tantric practice, everything that we do with another person, everything that we do uh, with the material world or with nature... If we want that to be an expression of God, that's a tantric practice. And if it's a sexual tantric practice, we want our sexuality to be an expression of God. And, uh, and my personal belief is that that's where the, the finest sexuality is, particularly because you know, developmental lines are included and transcend. So that expression of God still has that visceral genetic drive to, to have sex and orgasm. It still has that hunger for physiological pleasure. It still has that intense sense of belonging. You, know, you and this person in this little bubble of, of, of this, this inner world culture that you're creating erotically, it still has that, that guide for fulfillment. It still has the yogic practices of channeling energies and it has the additional sense of we want to bring God into the world through our erotic union with each other. I mean, you know, that's pretty damn fine when it happens. <laughs> no, no, no kidding, man. No kidding. <laughs> no, very inspiring, Keith. Very, uh -huh. very inspiring. So you have uh, written up some notes to this call, which I'll post. And your website is drkeithwitt.com. And you have some stuff on there, I'm assuming, that is in this territory as well, right? Yeah, one of my lectures, um, first of all, I have a lot of my Therapists in the Wild web series. It has to do with sex stuff because it's, I like that series to be funny and sex stuff is easily made funny. A lot of my blogs have to do with sexuality. i got about 80 blogs published. In the lectures series, the integral lecture is the 13th. I have a, one of my lectures is American Tantra and another one of my lectures is on the masculine and the feminine. And so that deals more specifically with these things. And my book, Waking Up, the last chapter was on integrally informed sex therapy. You know, one of the funny things in, in, in this country is, it, is it's actually more acceptable to talk about sexual pathology than it is to talk about fun sex. So at conferences, True, people it? can talk about sexual trauma, and they can talk about rape and incest and abuse and all that stuff. But if somebody gets up and says, 
I want to talk about what it's really like for a couple to get in bed and and really focus on having a great time. And, you know, he likes to have an orgasm. She does sometimes, sometimes not. Or maybe she likes four orgasms, but not five. And, you know, <laughs> you know, if somebody starts talking like that, everybody gets all embarrassed because they're talking about fun sex. But everybody's all fine when they're talking about sexual trauma. You know, when I'm in those audiences, it drives me crazy. No, that's so true, and I'm just realizing that the truth of that, not not only at conferences, but just at dinner parties. Or on the and, uh, Yeah, just just people who, uh, you know, it's just, we, we tend to focus on what's not working in general, but but you're right, talking about what really turns us on, that's still a taboo. Yeah, I read in the, pa- yeah, I read in the paper that, you know, so-and-so raped so-and-so, you know, in this other city. You know, you never yeah. hear, well, you know, the, the boy down the block with his 16-year-old girlfriend, he just got his first blowjob last Saturday, and boy, they both had a really good time. You know, <laughs> she found that she really liked going down on him, you know, wow. She looked at him and said, wow, I really like sucking your cock. He looked at her and says, wow, that was really funny. You know, come up here and give me a kiss. Okay, that conversation never happens, even yeah. though that's really beautiful. Particularly that never happens because as a 16-year-old, we're supposed to all pretend that people aren't sexual before they're 18. Another thing that fucking drives me crazy. Yeah. You, know, you know, I got in trouble once. This is a funny story. My son, uh, Ethan, had this history class, and they, they, you know, they had a couple of free days, and his teacher was an ex-Black Panther. who was kind of, you know, edgy guy. And he said, well, you know, about, how about relationships and sex? Who knows? And he said, my dad knows an awful lot about that. Well, let's have him come in and talk. Like, he came in Thursday and he said, well, you want to come in tomorrow? I said, are you kidding? Do I want to come in and talk to 17-year-old AP students about sex? I'm there. So I went there. I looked at him. I smiled. and said, okay, you guys, I'm going to tell you all the stuff that nobody's told you for the first 17 years of your life. And I just launched into all this stuff. They loved it. You know, they were talking to me about their sex issues, about why shouldn't I go hook up? Well, and then you're practicing hooking up and, you know, you know, you know well, I pretend to have orgasms sometimes. Well, you know, I don't know if that's a great idea. You know, you don't want to pretend, you know, that kind of stuff. It was just wonderful. One of the girls afterwards went up to Ethan and she said, she said Ethan, you're going to be a sexual god. <laughs> Ethan oh, called wow. me up afterwards and said, Dad, that was the best lecture I ever had. So what happened after Isn't that, that lecture? Well, what happened after that lecture is that teacher was called into the principal's office and was reamed out from front to back for having somebody come in and talk about sex to those kids. I had a mother call me up and practically report me to licensing. You know, my daughter's only 17. How dare you talk about that? You know, I couldn't tell her her daughter was famous for, you know, making out with her boyfriend on campus. You know, I was just sitting there just thinking to myself, Jesus Christ. So the next time I talked to a high school class, I had all of them take slips home to their parents with a sign saying, he's going to talk about relationships and sex and we give our permission. It was just weird how it just, ex- the kids had a great time, the teacher had a great time, and then it exploded afterwards because of the culture. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that seems to be happening with young people today, and I see it online uh, in these chat rooms, and it, actually there's this big TED talk about it called the Great Porn Experiment. And although, you know, children are taboo and all all that stuff and what you say is true, but from, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old on, they're saturated in porn, you know. And a lot of these guys end up 18, 19, 20 years years old, they're uh, unable to function with real women. 
uh-huh. and they're writing in and they're freaked out because yeah. they have erectile dysfunction uh-huh. because they're used their brains the, uh, the, or the you know the neurobiology of their brain is used to just getting blasted with image uh-huh. after image after image of the you know whatever they want. And it this is, is uh, a problem among a lot of young people. I think it's a problem among, among older people, too. But we didn't have the same kind of saturation when we were young that they do now. It's like cocaine, Jeff. Now, I'm, now here's the thing. Porn's here to stay. And so yep. what, what, what is not taught? Well, how do you consume porn in a way that doesn't turn into an obsessive coke habit? Okay, nobody's talked about that because you're not supposed to talk about an appropriate consumption of porn. Okay. Right. Nobody's even researched an appropriate consumption of porn. You just have to deal with people that have opinions about it, like me. You know, because I usually you can find social research. Haven't found any social research about that because it's, yeah. it's the whole concept is a forbidden concept. Yeah. And you know, porn potentially could really help sexual development, but it would only help sexual development within a context of how does it fit in with people gradually becoming sexualized in their life. You know, how does porn turn into something that helps you become a better lover rather than somehow traumatizes you and scrambles your sexual development? Okay. Well, to do that, we have to kind of know what help optimal sexual development is. We have a lot of ideas about that. And then, too, we need to provide little cultural context in the family and in larger cultures that support our pro-sexual development cultures. And basically, we don't have that. That's a residue from Puritanism and the agrarian society. Yeah. You know, we're trying, but, you know, it's just so hard. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we are. I mean, if we just look at the stages of development, this is where we are. Yeah. We can see that some of the puritanicalism and the taboos and so forth were functional in civilizing ourselves. We can see that further development requires that we move beyond them and move into a sex-positive culture where kids are socialized and brought up and developed in, in a way that's healthy. And this is good new work, Keith, and you're at the forefront of it. Yes, my pleasure to... My, it's my pleasure to, to help people be happier, more fulfilled people. And to do yeah. that, we need to be happier, more fulfilled in our sexual relationships and in our, sexuality, our sexual interfaces with everybody. So that when we walk down the, the, when I walk down a street, I feel the polarity, sexual and otherwise, with all the other people. And there's a part of me that, that, that feels a sense of responsibility to adjust all those energetic interfaces in a way that serves the highest good. I think that's a great way to be in the world. That's kind of like the tenth ox cart picture. And we can learn yeah. that. Those are yogas we can practice. And why not? Why not do it? I think that's a yeah. second-tier way of being, psychosexually, frankly. And I think it's a second-tier way of parenting uh, our children. And I think yeah. that's a great way of being in the world. Yeah, me too. And I thank you for your work. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I see we're getting bumping up to an hour here anything else you'd like to add on this topic keith and we'll keep her going yeah I mean, of course i can talk about this all day and all night i mean that's fine I mean, we've had a great talk <laughs> well we'll keep her going next month we'll we'll, we'll revisit uh, our conversation and uh, and uh, you know see what else we can illuminate yeah let's talk it's you know it's so good talking to you keith oh god jeff you know we you know you and i make this little this little integral culture out of which, out of which, really, we look with interest on everything. 
You know, that's yeah. one of the pleasures. <laughs> one of the pleasures of life, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, I love you, Jeff. Talk to you next time. I love time. you too, Keith. Uh, have a great uh, Saturday, and uh, we'll, we'll check in in a month. Yes, we will. All right. Bye-bye, my brother.